Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Christina Hu, a documentary filmmaker, former Peace Corps volunteer, and former regional GOTV director in Virginia for President Obama's re-election campaign. In 2019, Christina joined the Taiwanese American Citizens League's National Board as Director of Civic Engagement to help lead the Census 2020 initiative. We speak with Christina today about the importance of civic engagement and inclusion in a democratic society and the role of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders as a political force for achieving equality. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. I'd like to start with how you became involved in becoming so civically minded and your influences when you were young. I read about your experience in sixth grade and your introduction into civic affairs by signing a student petition. Can you tell us about that? I immigrated to America in middle fifth grade and I didn't speak any English. And it was my sixth grade teacher who really uh, helped me learn English by devising a specialized program for me. So, um, for instance, during English class, then I wouldn't participate with everybody. I would be pulled out of English class to go read on one-on-one with volunteer parents. She had a lot of influence on me, so I really looked up to her. It was also interesting, middle sixth grade, that there was this petition that I remember having to sign my name on, and then there was this conversation subsequently with the sixth grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Wong. She was also a white lady married to an Asian American. So that, that's also an interesting layer to the whole story too. So she asked me, why did I sign it? And I didn't really, um, I, don't, I remember not having a good answer. I, I, I remember it was something fun to do that everybody was doing. That's something that it was interesting that my signature meant something to somebody else. But then she told me that there, this one phrase always stuck with me, that she said, your signature represents you. I think in that moment, she meant that, like, that you should be careful where you sign your, your name to, what documents you sign your name to. But uh, I think she also meant that, that the signature that I have is, represents me, so it should represent something meaningful to me, too. That really made me thought more carefully about participation and civic engagement. There's a roundabout way to, to, to really look back at, at the very beginning of my uh, American journey. When I first read about Mrs. Wong, I thought that she was Asian American. And so it's interesting that you share that she was Caucasian and married to an Asian American and took his name, um, which I, yeah. I think is not very common in terms of a white woman taking on a, you know, a name that gives her a different ethnic identity, potentially. Yeah, I mean, I, I never got to ask her that. Um, so that's another part of the why I, I picked that particular time in my life to, to think about what, um, when I think about someone who made a huge impact in my life, I think about her. And because of so many layers to that, and also, 
in the background of that is that when I came to the United States, my family went to Virginia Beach. So it's really, Virginia Beach is the one of the most southern towns in Virginia. So it's almost to North Carolina. There were definitely opportunities for me to now looking back at that moment in my life and to go out her way to help me, maybe because her husband is Asian American. So she saw that connection or maybe not, or maybe she just, she was just a great teacher and she became a principal later too. So it's like there's a consistency on who she was and how lucky I was to have bumped into her because in contrast, when I came in, I, I came in middle fifth grade, and my fifth grade teacher didn't didn't really care what I what I was doing in class, and I just sat in the back of the classroom in English class, and I did okay in math class because uh, you didn't have to speak English <laughs> in those math classes, and and to be honest, like the level of mathematics that I I already learned in Taiwan was much more advanced than fifth grade math in the United States. So I had no problem in, in math class. But English class, um, that it was <laughs> that that I didn't speak English and she didn't really care how how I was doing, I think. I think I think it's also looking back at how many things that are interrelated that are maybe seemingly unrelated, but that that makes up who we are. Cause um my sixth teacher became a principal later. And uh, one of her programs that she insists on doing continuously is that she has students come in to read to her. So reading and that connection and empowerment, it's just who who she was. I think that's really amazing that you had the awareness at that young age to recognize that pivotal moment in your life. Um, and remember what she said about your signature having meaning. What was your background like with regard to your parents? Were they in, in any way interested in civic engagement? Because as new immigrants, many Asian American families, the stereotype is, you know, hunker down, don't stand out, <laughs> study hard, and don't make any waves, right? And so civic engagement can be perceived by immigrant parents as something that is causing trouble. Yeah, these are things that I, it's interesting enough that I continually talk to my own parents about that um, the context is that upward Taiwanese American and the piece of, um, uh, of, of civic engagement and democracy activists is actually seen as dangerous to, uh, in, in that context. There was the white terror where people weren't able to talk about it because people just disappear. So it's like understanding how that piece of it affected my parents and the psychology of that. But coming to America, there's also the gender aspect of it too. That uh, when I joined, I remember when I joined the debate team in high school, I remember my dad saying that, uh, why, why does a girl need to argue, learn how to argue? You know? <laughs> And uh, my mom was actually supportive of that because uh, I think for her, it was she saw it more of a practical skill of being able to use and uh, master the language of English too. So it's not so much a message of not getting involved or not um, uh, just keep your head down. But I think that comes from that legacy of that there's a certain sense of danger 
to being involved that because that was the history uh, for my parents, right? And so in terms becomes my history too. And so so I joined the Peace Corps. My my uh, <laughs> my parents. I think they were proud, but at the same time, it's sort of like as an immigrant kid that your parents didn't go through the same system, so uh, an educational system and the same uh, process like growing up in America. So they didn't really understand. So so for them, it's, it's like they're going through the same learning experience of how to succeed in America with me, along with me, rather than like being parents. And then I got to be better at English than my parents too. So that that also play into a bit of like, they're also learning. So it's, it kind of blurred the line a little bit between uh, what the parents can offer versus what the kids can say about what to do with their life. So there's a certain amount of freedom too, for, um, in my case. So uh, when I joined Peace Corps, I remember my dad actually sent me a letter when I first arrived in Ukraine. So I served for two years in Ukraine. I always remember my dad that letter and she, he said, um, maybe it is good that you join Peace Corps because now you have lived part of your life. You have part of a memory of childhood in Taiwan, how it became wealthy from, from third world to first world standard. And now you have also lived in the most wealthy country. You've seen the living standard there. And now you're going to have that experience in Ukraine, how um, during the 70s, there was a time when the Soviet Union was the first world and Taiwan was the third world. Those are terminologies from before. But the the situation has kind of reversed. Now I'm a Peace Corps volunteer from the United States going to Ukraine to teach English there. And time sort of have stopped for them in terms of develop, like so economic development since like the 70s. And he said that maybe it is good that to for me to think about not to take progress as a directional, linear, directional forward. It could go backward. And that's another thing that um, I remember, like, just the lesson from my dad, that letter. And I think I've never take, taken progress for granted that it would go forward. It, it could go backward. So what did your parents do? Were they working class when they first arrived? So my, so that's another thing, like my dad, my grandfather was a store owner that, that had like, I think maybe third grade education and my grandmother was illiterate. Uh, they own a small shop um, in Taiwan in the, in the town that, uh, that is still in, in the town in Taiwan that my mom's from too, but my mom's dad, so my, my grandfather from my mom's side, uh, was educated and they were wealthier. So like I see that contrast too and that change in Taiwan and then they got married in Taiwan and we I um, was born in, in Taipei. So so there's a part of identity maybe is that privilege, that my privilege I think is being from that mix. So being able to, to understand that the class system as well, that it's not linear. So your dad's parents, you said, were working class, and then what was Oh, they were, his... like, poor, like, really poor. poor. Okay, okay, and very economically disadvantaged. And what did he do when he first came to this country? My dad actually, my parents are divorced, and my dad actually didn't come to the United States because he said that uh, 
that it was is something that he couldn't do that that coming to America then you have to be a restaurant owner or that because his degree wouldn't be recognized the same as in Asia and but it's different for my mom so there is that story of my mom coming to America and then getting a nurse assistant degree and as a working class here in America so there's all that all that contradiction it's not a straight line it's not a traditional story of a lot of Taiwanese Americans are they came here as graduate students and then they go into like white collar jobs I was wondering if that working class background informed their you you know you talked about your father's sort of gendered lens for looking at your choices, right? Interpreting your choices and 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 when you joined debate, um he he characterized it as learning how to quote unquote argue. Uh and I'm wondering if that was from a working class background that he felt like working class background or from his the Asian kind of um traditional mentality, the Chinese or Taiwanese mentality that women are or I should say <laughs> universal mentality, right? Not just to Asian and Chinese and Taiwanese, but universal that women are supposed to be in the home and be quiet and be agreeable and not argue. And whether that was a gendered lens that he was making that comment or if it was a class lens. So my grandfather was very poor but the storyline for him was different that he uh my grandfather had five kids or six but one died in infancy and uh all five kids except for one went to college and my dad went to college so he ended up owning his own company and became like he came up with the Taiwanese uh economic miracle during the 80s and not so much during 90s. <laughs> um so there's that whole that that entire wave of like the global force so that a create create a different narrative for him. I so I don't think it's so much of the um the the blue color background. I think it has to do with just the environment of Asian community and I think also he didn't leave with my mom to United States. Um he stayed in Asia and I think that the the Asian mentality um that that one is I'm still like I think that there the inherent contradiction in terms of like modern uh modernization in Asia that um that there is that inherent contradiction of economic growth but then but then the wealthier actually holding on to that traditional sense of of gender roles harder i think just to be clear so your father stayed in taiwan while your mother came with you yeah to virginia i see yeah. so that must have been really hard for your mom to live in a very conservative virginian town and really stand out while having to raise kids and navigate sort of the social aspects of i don't want to say assimilation because i don't know if that was something that she was aspiring to but the immigrant experience. So we really didn't like socialize or anything. I just we kept ourselves and my my when we when we immigrated to Virginia Beach because my uncle owned a Chinese restaurant and so and my my mom's older sister was there too so there were some family members around there in Virginia Beach. This might be a good place for us to give a little bit of background 
to listeners who are not familiar with Taiwan as a political entity compared to China and Hong Kong. So the you know people I think are maybe familiar now with Hong Kong um, that it was a former colony. Recently, they've been there've been a lot of protests there for democracy. But Taiwan, I feel like, is less known in the American mindset. And I'm wondering if you can give me just a brief, give us just a brief history of Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, I'm glad you're laughing. But <laughs> yeah. Um, so Taiwan is an island off coast of of China. It, I think there's like. Eighty or a hundred miles of water, and it's called Taiwan Strait, and is this island that is off southern coast of China. So there, uh, there has been on the island indigenously they have like Polynesian tribal people in Taiwan, and also immigrants of of southern coast of China too. So there is Hakka, Hokkien, and then various uh, Polynesian tribes. And then during the colonial era, like when the Portuguese and the Spaniards and Columbus went westward, that uh, that was uh, also part of the history of that trade, uh, the the seafaring trade across southern coast of of Africa to go to Asia to trade like silk and like the seafaring people. And Taiwan had uh, British, Spanish, Portuguese that have um, little forts in different parts of Taiwan. And also, if people know about like um, the Dutch East Company as well, they used to have Indonesia as one of the strongholds, but also they had a stronghold in Taiwan as well. So there's a bunch of history there. And then in 1895, Japan also officially signed a treaty after the, uh, the war with China uh, in, when China was still under imperial time that Taiwan became part of the Japanese empire. So then 1895, that brings us closer to World War II. And World War II, I think like every, is, most people are maybe familiar with that period. <laughs> and after the war, um, uh, there was an ally versus Axis and the Axis power was Germany and Japan. And the ally force, the, uh, the British, Canadian, uh, America, and France of the Allied power, but in 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 Asia was China and United States. So when the Jap- Japanese had to capitulate at the end of the war, the Chinese army was the one that went to Taiwan to accept the the uh, capitulation. But as uh, many many people know, then after 1945, the war war ends. But um, civil war in China uh, was just beginning. Well, well, continued actually, really just a continuation of the fight between the communists and the nationalists. And then when the nationalists lost, they went to Taiwan. So that is where we are. The nationalists, also called the KMT, the Kuomintang, Kuomintang, they, in many ways, correct me if I'm wrong, are perceived to have quote unquote colonized Taiwan perceived to be another another colonizer because they have in their policy and and behavior suppressed the indigenous voices is that is that accurate it's yeah it's kind of accurate that um in in the way that when they came to taiwan they really didn't see themselves as colonists because they thought of themselves more of this a temporary government in taiwan eventually it's gonna go back to china but that never happened 
uh, what happened was that in Taiwan was that uh, so after World War II, 1947, then there was an uh, election that uh, the nationalist KMT was ruling uh, in Nanjing still. And so that government, when they went to Taiwan in 1949, it stayed the government until 1986, actually. So that, that, there was martial law declared, there was uh, a Cold War, and so there was support of the U.S. And then, yeah, there's so much history that it's sort of like that theme of Taiwan being sort of in the middle of the, the world affairs. According to China, Taiwan is a part of China. Yeah. And that's not so according to the Taiwanese. They, they view themselves as independent from China. Yeah. So China claims that Taiwan's part of China is a continuation of that civil war that they have with the nationalists. But then it's sort of like there is also people that were in Taiwan that were in Taiwan much, much longer when before the nationalists came to Taiwan. So there's all these complications too. So, and then um, because of the martial law, then there were suppressions and then there were people disappearing. Intellectuals were, uh, because of martial law, then they get to legally uh, disappear people and, and, and uh, executing people. So there's a history in Taiwan too. So that, that's called white terror during the 60s all the way to 70s. And that when you look at the martial law in Taiwan, they say we rank the second longest martial law only after Syria. So that I think that in itself is sort of like an interesting frame of mind when you look at Taiwan and what the contentions are there still. But because the rest of the world also legally knows Taiwan is Republic of China, then um, that becomes also complicated too. And also... We were part of the UN before too. We were the on the Security Council with Republic of China, but then 1971 it changed, which I think is justifiable. Right, with with Nixon, yeah. you're saying? Yeah, uh, Nixon and Carter. So, given this history, which, by the way, thank you. I don't know that many other Taiwanese Americans or Chinese Americans with um, who might not identify as Taiwanese but have a heritage in Taiwan actually know this history. Why do you think it's important for someone to know this history? And why is it important for Taiwanese Americans to be counted in the census, as you've shared, and uh, as a voice in Asian American politics? Yeah. So thank you for that question. <laughs> that was a lot in that. Uh, it's always interesting when I think about, like, I think I, I'm an interesting case that I wasn't born here and my parents history in Taiwan too so it's like everything is so complicated I think there's a certain richness in terms of like talking about history and talking about the whole of history that I think it helps us to orient, or orient ourselves to uh, to think about the, the going forward right and so that part of the Taiwanese identity but then the American piece of that the wider lens of of the group of us as Asian Americans, then I think it's important to show that the diversity within that group as well. And I think it's very different if you are from Taiwan and that experience is unique, as well as you're unique if you're from Vietnam, China, uh, Cambodia. Like there's 
Asia in itself is a con- is a continent that in the area geographically is very wide and very diverse, and I think it's very important for everybody to write in. So an interesting thing is that on the census, uh, that their check boxes under Asian categories, it's not they're pre-existing Asian boxes already. So there were six groups. Uh, there's Chinese, Japanese, Asian, Indian, meaning Indian. <laughs> uh, it's interesting how that, those categories evolve. And Filipino, Vietnamese, and Korean. So we all know that's not all the Asian groups, right? <laughs> so everybody else would have to then uh, distinguish get themselves right in by checking the other Asian box and writing in their category. So one, the benefit here in the in the American context is that one, that as a group altogether, all the Asian Americans are not undercounted. So if you don't write in, don't check that Asian bo- other Asian box, then you're not going to be counted in the Asian category, Asian American category. Another thing is then to show that diversity, because there are differences in terms of how we come to America that really has determined in a lot of ways of how our American experience went. So that's why I went back to the story of my sixer teacher, because what are it's, it's interesting how like is the political act or how we see the world is also very linked to our personal experience too. I was very lucky to have met a teacher, a Caucasian lady that uh, very very much one of the best teacher I ever had and very lucky to have her who's also married to an Asian American. Um, so <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many other people have that same experience and that part has shaped me, who I am. So with regard to the census, mm-hmm. there's 17 million Asian American Pacific Islanders in this country, mm-hmm. which I was surprised at when I looked up that number because it it seems like there are so many more of us out of 350 plus million. And every presidential voting cycle, 600,000 new voters in that population are added. But despite us being a growing demographic in this country, one of the fastest growing demographics in this country, Asian Americans also are amongst the low also have amongst the lowest levels of civic and political participation. And I don't know what the numbers are with regard to the census, but before I go into sort of the analysis, the sociopolitical analysis of the trends over the past, you know, 40 years, what do you think anecdotally are, are some of the reasons why you've seen and observed Asian Americans not wanting to be engaged I think that first of all, like I that with the numbers and counts, I think we're undercounted, and there's evidence for that. And I think it's probably directly linked to our lack of civic engagement. And there's different levels of civic engagement too. And I think maybe it's a narrative of of um, linking to our our privilege too. So like, well, I'm also speaking just for myself as as an East Asian person too that. But everybody's so unique. And one of the interesting things that uh, I'm also learning as well that from this process is that how do I talk to Taiwanese Americans? There are certain profiles too that be especially second generation, like American born Taiwanese American. A lot of times that it seems 
part to talk about uh, civic engagement because that is, I think it's of that history too of any public declaration of truthfulness about yourself is something inherently dangerous. Uh, Any speech of any kind that's dangerous. You're referring to like the history the of Asian, Asian. Oh, I see. Not a, not to the history of Asian American yeah. discrimination in this country. Not that. No, no, no. So, like, I think it's. I think that, like, so, so going back to like the idea of Asian American as a uh, as a monolith. Is, I think it's very important to say that that's not true at all. But even with thing. So for my familiarity with the Taiwanese American community, we really are very diverse too. So I was about to say that um, that for Asian American Federation is uh, is an advocacy group here in, United, in, in New York, and they did a, a profiling of Taiwanese American, and there are actually a, a wide range of uh, poverty income levels too. So so I think a lot of times is that. Um, that we don't have enough of uh, profiling or studies on Asian American of current existence to to really be able to say that I think there's a danger of like oversimplification sometimes when you talk about what about civic engagement. And I think for uh, for my anecdotally from the Taiwanese American piece of doing the census work is that a lot of times. Uh, from people are saying that uh, they they just don't. It's not something like cool, something interesting to them. That's the feedback I get. So I don't really know what to do with that either. But except for continually to repeat that message, I always say that like I think about um, how how the real work is the the boring work actually, because because it's not about. Uh, just going to protest is so so the the spirit of that protest to carry that on that every single day and that's what it means to me to be civically engaged to stay passionate to stay uh uh engaged with individuals within this democracy and and um and there in some way that like the Taiwanese American piece of like the people who are in uh, Taiwanese American Citizens League and Taiwanese American professionals, those are our local chapters, are people who are in uh, white collar jobs. So how do we? So so these are people empowered already, right? And but they they don't see the connection of their um, their role in the system too. So that that so so I try to tie that back into that your person, my personal story coming to America. And um, feeling that connection with the community, it, it's really important to to feel like the, even though you there's no immediate danger that you need to go protest for a certain thing, but democracy is a continuation. And also trying to like public service of going back to thinking a lot about that letter from my dad, how things could go backward too. That, and a democracy is that going backward is really pretty much upon individuals to go vote. If you don't vote, then things can go backward. Yeah. Right. And and so the the narrative that a lot of political scientists have um, shared with regard to Asian American participation in politics 
and civics is that there's culturally potentially you know more of an alignment with individualism and that a lot of the uh, large waves of immigrants who were coming through after uh, in the 70s that their motivation was to really focus on economic advancement for their individual families and you know if if they were working several jobs or whatnot they they didn't have the time or the motivation to participate in civic life and and there therefore there's in other words a privilege obviously attached to being able to be quote unquote civically engaged right but then you're saying right now that some of the second generation asian americans who have quote unquote white collar jobs aren't really as interested either and don't have a, a consciousness around either our history of Asian American political exclusion or just the the knowledge that economic advancement without a political voice is not enough and will still hinder us from being recognized as not just a constituency but as a group within this country. Yeah, yeah. So I think like adding to that is that 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 interest. Thing. So, so like there, there are different, different experiences. First, so there's different experiences within the Asian American community in terms of how we come to America, and then there's also a difference of uh, Asian American experience in terms of history of pre-civil rights movement, and then within civil rights movement too. So, I, I am of the the generation that came way after, like benefiting from civil rights, right? But then not a lot of us understand that that's what I'm realizing as well so um that it's 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 I think it's a lot of things about like bringing to bringing into the idea of that you can't assume things just just going to naturally happen and part of the democracy is also being part of that conversation and being participatory in in terms of our citizenship and it's not just voting. And I think I want people to relate to civic engagement as more than just voting. But, you know, it's a starting point. Fill out your senses to go vote. And that's very basic. For me, it's, um, I think, also within the Asian American, uh, <laughs> I guess I would call maybe a little bit of apathy sometimes, is that because of our experience after civil rights movement, uh, a lot of newcomers has been so different, too, that we're not... Uh, that that so it doesn't make us feel like it's not immediately obvious for some people i think that that our role in terms of moving things forward in terms of civil rights language and human rights language in the united states is also beneficial to us maybe sometimes it's not linked so immediately but uh i think uh i think it's becoming increasingly obvious (laughs) hopefully yeah Amongst pollsters and political scientists who study different ethnic groups, they have characterized Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders as being, like you you mentioned the word apathy, uh, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, a very diverse and complicated voice to even, quote unquote, uh, communicate to. Um, And part of it has to do with the ways in which Asian Americans um, skewed to the left and to the right on different issues that, you know, they're not consistent. And so, for example, surprisingly, when I was, you know, doing research for this conversation, Asian Americans are the ethnic group with the highest rate of willingness to pay increased taxes. 
um, and accept, you know, larger roles in government in our lives. And also very high in identifying as environmentalists and um, and caring about, you know, the planet and sustainability. But meanwhile, they've been very much historically in the past 40 plus years, very much um, supporting economic policies that one might call neoliberal. But that's kind of shifted now because of Trump and increasing income inequality in this country, where some of the key areas that they care about in terms of policy is education and health care. And then with Trump's rhetoric, very loud rhetoric against immigration, anti-Muslim sentiments, and, you know, other issues that I feel like make Asian Americans feel less secure about their, our, you know, our role in this country, that's started, starting to move people more to the left. And so my question is, if people are changing their policy perspectives because of self-interest and not collective interest, for example, not being invested in gender equality or racial equality as much as other groups are, how do we get them to be interested and see that what's happened in their own history, in their countries of origin, and what's happening here in the U.S. are parallel and that they should care? One example is, you know, Black Lives Matter. There's, I think, amongst the elder first-generation immigrant population, like our parents' generation, there's still, I think, a lot of ignorance around racism. And, you know, there's, for the lighter-skinned East Asians, um, there's a great willingness to be white-adjacent and benefit from kind of either being invisible in the racial dialogue or being white-aligned. And they'd rather be perceived as white, so to speak, than as a person of color um, and benefit from that white-adjacent privilege. But we're not considered white, and we are not being we're not treated as white in the larger racial dialogue. So how do we get everyone to develop that consciousness that maybe some of the younger people and the younger generations have a better grasp of? I think for me that um what I've done is uh, I co-authored uh, an article talking about the need to have these conversations within the groups that we think that are a community, uh, that because there's certain access, maybe space that people are willing to talk about these difficult conversations. And then you, in your question, you touched upon that, uh, that, uh, that the security piece of Asian Americans' role in this country. And I think that the I can't quite remember how you phrased it, but I think you were saying like our white adjacentness that makes, I think it's because many of us, that that piece of like not fully recognized as American that constantly makes us feel insecure in this country. I think that's why that people would rather be white adjacent than being invisible rather than participate fully and be out there and, and um, and be 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 more vocal about things that we can see can easily apply to us too uh, as non-white. So, yeah. what's the risk to those people by 
using that approach? Uh, oh, by having conversations? What do you No, mean? no. What, what's the risk to those people who would rather be invisible as an ethnic group than to speak out and stand up for equality for all ethnic groups? I think it's the psychology of that doesn't apply to me immediately. So then you can kind of feel safer that way. I, I, I don't fully understand it because I, that's not where I stand. That's where, not where I think. I think more in terms of, um, so the, there, there's a sentence in the, in the article that I co-written with Leona Chan is that dignity and, and human rights in general is not a zero-sum game. So it's not so much that if somebody else has more, then you have less. Is rather that if we all have more, then we we are all going to rise together. So when you were, I don't know, for some reason, when you were talking about like the, the security, the feeling of being part of the community and and the empowerment piece, maybe that we haven't as a community yet feel like we are part of it just yet. And I think that, but then at the same time, I feel like we have to be the ones to introduce ourselves to that role in order to to advance our own need for security in this country. Because, I mean, look at, like, our, the history. Uh, I'm not Japanese-American, but there is a history of that constant question whether uh, are you fully American or not. And I was the Peace Corps volunteer. Like, internationally, people also see Asian faces. They, they don't associate that with being American, too. So th- those are those are things that do affect how you, you view yourself and, and how much how much permission you give yourself to speak out and um, and I think maybe the gender piece also allows me to think about it. There is that language in the gender piece of self empowering that you need to give yourself permission and that uh, being female you're always looking for permission elsewhere, right? But you really have to be the one that give yourself that permission and the gender piece that maybe that bleeds into my advocacy in terms of like Taiwanese identity as well. A conversation around Asian Americans and civic engagement and politics, we can't have that conversation without touching upon, of course, (laughs) the most recent election and the fact that we had our first major Asian American candidate in the presidential primaries, in the Democratic primaries, Andrew Yang. Yeah. (laughs) I have a lot of feelings about him and... I'm wondering, and I actually I was surprised that there was such widespread, diverse support for him uh, amongst men and women and across racial boundaries. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about Andrew Yang and what he has done to either help or hinder Asian Americans in terms of the overall perception of us by larger society and in terms of his influence in activating civic engagement within the community? Yeah, Andrew Yang is a very interesting character, but uh, you know he's Taiwanese American. But he um, so there is a piece of that uh, that is interesting in the psychology of Taiwanese American too, because he when he campaigned in, on the debate stage, I noticed that he didn't want to say he's his parents are from Taiwan. He says his parents are from Asia. So I, I had a little issue with that, but I think overall that he. He has been uh, a great encouragement, served as an encouragement to a lot of my Taiwanese American friends and Asian Americans. But 
he's also kind of uh, being, has he been vocal at all through the Black Lives Matter issues? Or? I, I haven't really followed him, I, to be honest, because I, I'm very disappointed in him as um, someone who represents our voice. Um, given that he was the, the, I mean, I guess Tulsi Gabbard, um, but even worse. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, but yeah, it's so, complicated, and, right? so yes, complicated. so yeah, and I'm, I don't vote by um, affinity group, right? I vote mm-hmm. by policy alignment. What I was offended about is that he was so simplistic in his characterization of our economic, social, and political problems in this country, right? It's like UBI, UBI, universal basic income, that's going to solve everything. And it's not because the problems we have are so complicated and he is providing an answer that only deals with the symptoms. He doesn't look, he doesn't have a systems analysis. He's not looking at the root causes. He never named that there was systemic racism and and sexism in this country and that our policies, economic and otherwise, are exacerbating inequalities in our country that in, in the culmination of the pandemic are exposing this cultural underbelly um, that so many white Americans want to ignore or deny. And so what I really dislike about that is that it makes us, if people were to generalize and stereotype, you know, it makes us seem simplistic and not nuanced in our ability to either understand problems or solve problems. And the other thing is, I I was following him briefly, and then I stopped following him on Twitter. But at some point, when the um, the impeachment process was going on, he tweeted that when Trump was out of office, he didn't feel like there should be any effort to try to hold him accountable, and that we should just let it go. And for me, as someone who's a advocate for gender justice and domestic violence victims. There's no way as a survivor, like accountability is key. If you don't have accountability in your government at the highest levels, you can't expect accountability anywhere in society, especially not in homes. And so for him to just say, oh, let this man who's like the most corrupt person in the history of American politics just get away with it when he's no longer in office, when we are actually allowed to prosecute him is ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I, I was ashamed. I'm ashamed of him. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I felt like um, across the Democratic stage, I, I didn't think that he was the most appealing. I mean, even though it's kind of hard for me. Like, I feel like being Taiwanese American, I guess I'm supposed to support him. But I, I also think that we should away from thinking that because... Uh, being Asian American, visibly Asian American, doesn't always mean that you relate to the the complexity of it. And you just sort of named it. I, I felt that he he was very good at the social media and uh, the aspect of it. So I think that's probably why he got so popular. And I think that he may have some positive messages, but um, I don't know, man. I. <laughs> I had a friend who went to his rally, and she's also Taiwanese American too. And then she asked him, like, "Why should we support you?" And he said, maybe jokingly, that he said that because you're Asian American, like, you have to vote for me. Oh and my that god, that was a little strange for me. That because I think that piece of the the fact that he's on stage and then not wanting to say the word Taiwan, 
but say that my parents are from Asia. I thought that was a little strange. So that gave me a little bit of understanding. Maybe he's wanting to be less controversial, but I feel like it wasn't makes me think that he's less authentic than I would want my leader to be. At the same time, it's also like when I think about people who run for president, I really want someone who has experience, who has worked in the government before. That just my personal preference. Yeah. So he basically, what he he said to your friend was, "I want all the benefits and privileges of being Asian American, but none of the responsibility to actually create policy that lifts up my community." It's so hard, like when you have like the first guy who's running for president, right, and getting so much reception, and then he he may not have been with the community, <laughs> like sort of advocating for the community. So there is that the double edged sword. Like, do you so do you then like discount? Uh, yeah, it's 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 hard. I think this one is so hard. Did you read his op ed in the Washington Post? Oh, sorry. So he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, which was horrifying, <laughs> and there was a lot of backlash. Oh, about is it about the the racism from Trump, and then he's saying that oh, we should do more civically engaged before. So he he wrote the op-ed was in response to Trump's racism yeah. and his tweets around the coronavirus. And so because, you know, as, as you know, there's been an increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans since yeah. the virus. And of course, Trump has conflated Asian Americans with uh, Asians in Asia, which again, cast us as not belonging and the other. And so what I'll read what Andrew Yang wrote. So part of it is it was this is towards the end. So the whole thing was just offensive in general and ignorant. Um, and then the last part of his Op-ed says, quote, we need to step up, help our neighbors, donate gear, vote, wear red, white, and blue, volunteer, fund aid organizations, and do everything in our power to accelerate the end of this crisis. We should show without a shadow of a doubt that we are Americans who will do our part for our country in this time of need, unquote. <laughs> yeah, so. I don't know what, how to, like... <laughs> I feel like there's always something missing in when he talks about... It's it's very simplistic. History. Yeah, that may be... It's just... Yeah, and, I don't know. And it continues to other us and really diminish us. I mean, it's very clear what Black Lives Matter has done with regard to police brutality these past several weeks is elevate everybody and challenge everybody of all colors and races to invest in working against systemic racism, right? And mm -hmm. Andrew Yang had the opportunity to do that with regard to investing in racism against Asian Americans, any kind of racism. But, you know, in particular, he was address addressing Asian Americans. And instead, he c calls us out as someone that we should just hide in our shadows and, again, be othered and gets other people, white Americans, to continue to see us in that way, which I think is really, really harmful. Yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't know. I feel like this. It's great that as an Asian face that he has gone as far as he has in terms of presidential politics. But I think a lot of times I say to my friends, he's not the first Asian American to run for public office. If you yeah. look back at like Patsy Mink for one. 
like you think about legacy wise, like she has advanced women's uh, title nine woman being treated, getting the same opportunity. So it's interesting when you think about uh, th- this is maybe with one of the criticisms from like the more conservative voice about like uh, identity politics sometimes like no just because he's Asian American with Taiwanese American doesn't necessarily mean that he speaks for this community. I don't know if you you heard about this too, but he has access to so many issues that he could that he's experienced that he could use as a way to generate ideas for solutions around gender, around disability. Like, I don't know if you know, his son has, is autistic mm-hmm. and, yeah, his and his wife, wife yeah. right, was sexually assaulted. And, and so issues around gender and a disability, he could have come out with, with so many great solutions and yet he didn't have, the, I mean, anyway, so let's stop talking about Andrew Interesting because he is so high profile and we rarely get this much attention for who, who have our features right in America and I guess I'm just also trying to in the sense that everyone should participate and and not from the point of insecurity proving yourself to be American but knowing that you're American you're entitled to these participation to these voices so there's like that slight twist to that right that that that's where I'm coming from and I'm still trying to figure out too, like where this um, this need for for community organizing or that this sense of need to drive up to talk about like civic engagement comes from too. That I mean, maybe there's peace from my childhood and being Taiwanese and all this together, and I feel that being a woman too that gives you access, the glimpse of what what possibly could what would discrimination look like and feel like maybe it's that access but I feel like everybody has that right I think also to speak to your experience in having conversations about Andrew you know where people felt like they they should vote for him including you because he's Asian American I mean I I think that's part of civic engagement too that we should have a right to be able to call out people within our own communities for representing us for not stepping up and we shouldn't feel like we need to protect him from attacks or criticism because he's the first prominent Asian American candidate on a national level. We should be able to demand that the candidates coming from any community are fluent in the topics and the platforms and the policy positions that they're putting forth and and not to protect them from uh, criticism because we're afraid that there, there it's going to be a very long time before the next one comes out. I am more of the school of like Grace Box, though, that I think that we are the heroes we're looking for. And having these conversations and just having um, friendships and, and being open and talking about Thinking about what makes you who you are, I think that goes a lot further than saying that uh, that you you must well you must have well of course it's beneficial to have Asian faces in national politics, but just necessarily connecting to that having a Asian face or a Taiwanese American guy that yeah I'm probably gonna get shit for this, <laughs> but it's like 
I we even reached out to him. Maybe he could do a piece on uh, raising awareness for census, and uh, we didn't hear anything back. And uh, within the Taiwanese group, that um, I uh, reached out to his mother, and his mother said, "This is so embarrassing." But I think that maybe this could give some insight into like why we're the way we are. That we don't participate as much. His mother said to me that. The reason she has a good relationship with her son is because she never like uh, asked very little of him. So that's like a, a comment on both gender, <laughs> and <laughs> there's so much in that, right? Like, I don't yeah, know. and the patriarchal kind of、uh, mindset that she still has. Yeah, and also the going back to the identity of Taiwanese Americans of that、uh, that sense of that. When you say you're Taiwanese, then you're like, there's a danger of upsetting other people. So he'd rather not do that, and that I suspected that, but、um, I, I don't know him, so I never got to ask him. But I thought like senses was something so low hanging fruit that you, it would be great for him as well to be a spokesman. Spokesperson, but、uh, it's interesting to to think about that, and also it, it, I think maybe that's that in some ways, and I feel like a bit ashamed to speak to this whole, especially for Taiwanese Americans. That I think even though we're not all the same experience, that there there are people who don't have white collar jobs within Taiwanese American community, but predominantly that these are the people who are. Heading organizations or get to be more high profile, right? And if they don't feel like saying the words that they are Taiwanese American, then that feels like it's sort of a continuation of not self empowering. And I'm also trying to be like careful here too, because everybody like you don't know what's going on with them too, right? What other groups out there wouldn't wouldn't come out and probably say their own heritage? <laughs> like, isn't that a problem to itself? It's sort of it's like an insight into the Taiwanese American psychology, but I think it's sort of an anecdotal story, like that not asking too much, not to rock the boat too much, not to upset too much, but at the same time, it's like whose comfort are we protecting? Like nobody's. It seems that question gets gets put aside more. I think because that I was raised by a single mom and seeing her succeed, and and then living in New York, be maybe is in the bubble of like you can be whatever you want here, and that that pride and the learning process of believing、uh, that you don't need to be married in order to feel like you check a box of like acceptability. I think that maybe it's my own personal journey to to feel like I need to continually do this to talk about self empowerment. In in a lot of ways, it's like who are you waiting for to give you permission? <laughs> Life is short. <laughs> Thank you so much for these very valuable insights. So we've come to the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I call the engendered questionnaire. And the first question is: What is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think it's, it's everything that、um, 
sometimes I don't even know how to begin to answer these. It seems like it should be so painfully obvious. <laughs> like, that, heck, like, being uh, the gender woman is half of the world. Like, there, there's so many of us that are doing valuable work. And it's part of coming toward that, uh, that true acceptance of our whole humanity that we have to support gender equality. And that comes with not being assaulted. It seems very basic. What gives you hope? I think conversations like this, that I, like today I went walking and then I saw someone on the street uh, chalking the word vote. And then uh, she was filling in the, the big letters with color so they, the letters would seem more pronounced from the street. And I stopped and I said, can I help? So I ended up coloring in one of the letters. So things like that, like small gestures and like constantly empowering yourself to know what can I do, asking that question and allowing yourself to do the little things every day. So if, like I, when I was in Peace Corps, that a lot of these works is like, what does the one individual matter? But if, if not for the one individual, maybe lots of individuals together isn't that the whole so so as individuals that having that connection continue to talk about things and think about where you're coming from i think that gives me hope that um looking at taiwan looking at there are lots of positive examples and looking at the protesters being out there that this need to constantly improve and to be better i think is very hopeful for the future and final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think empowering ourselves to know we, we can be powerful for ourselves and powerful for other people. I know I'm being very big because <laughs> that's a really tough question. Um, we do more of self-examination and do more of uh, encouragement and do more meditation. And so you can only do advocacy work if you're relaxed. Thank you, Christina, so much. <laughs> I really enjoyed our conversation. And <laughs> I support all of your work in getting people to participate in the census. Thank you so much for inviting me and to talk about these really, really tough issues. And uh, I do not have all the answers, but I think as we continue to have conversations, we get ever closer. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.